You guys, if you've been here long enough, have heard about some of the conversations I've had with my boy, Jaden. He's six now, going on seven. He's a first grader. And a few weeks ago, we were having a conversation in the car while his mom and his little brother, Evan, were in the store shopping. Evan takes after his mom. He likes to shop. Jaden takes after me. He doesn't. And so we're in the car talking. And for one reason or another, we got to talking about Satan and how any evil person in the world can change. They can repent and, and turn to Jesus and believe in him and be saved. But I was telling him that that's not true of Satan and his demons. They can never change and be saved. And the reasons for that have been debated over the centuries many times over. But Jaden said, hey, I know why Satan can never change. I was like, really? These, all these guys from the past centuries would love to hear this. And I said, why can't Satan ever change? And he said, because his evil undies are glued to his butt. <laughs> so I'd love to be able to go back in time and see all these great theologians say, oh, that's it. But I was thinking about that with Satan. He, he doesn't ever change. He is in the, the mother of all ruts. If there's ever a rut that someone's in, it, it's Satan. Jesus said he's the father of lies. He'll always be the father of lies. Jesus said he came to steal and kill and destroy. That will always be the way he operates. And he will always seek to do that in our lives as individuals and in the life of his church to steal and kill and destroy. And one of the ways we see that the most often is in what we would call problems in our lives. Problems of all kinds in our individual lives and in the church are often caused by Satan. That's the bad news, but in the same conversation, we got to talking about how God knows everything. And at first I used the big word, which you never do with a six-year-old. I told him that God is omniscient. And he said, Dad, what's that mean? And I said, well, it means he knows everything. And, and so he, he decided to coin it in his own words. He said, oh, God is infinity percent non-stupid. I'm like, yeah, that sums it up pretty good. God's infinity percent non-stupid. And what that means, also what omniscient means, is that God knows everything even before it happens. And I thought about as much as Satan is in this mode of trying to steal, kill, and destroy and, and cause problems, it must be so frustrating for him to know that before he even thinks of a problem that he wants to inflict on an individual or a church, God already knew about it. God already knew about it. You know, think about that. The Super Bowl is coming up. Imagine playing against another team, another head coach that knows every play you're going to run before you run it. You talk about frustrating. Now, to be honest, if we look at life, isn't it true that God sometimes allows Satan for various reasons to get a field goal or a touchdown or an interception, if you will, going with the football illustration. But he knows and God knows that at the end of the game, God wins. What a frustrating existence Satan must live. You ever look for the definition of loser? It is him. But the good news is that what is so frustrating for him ought to be super encouraging to us here tonight. And the main idea I want to get at tonight, I don't know what problems you're going through in your life. 
I don't know what challenges you're facing, what's weighing you down. The main idea I want to get at tonight is that our problems are often God's platform to show his power and spread his word. Our problems are often God's platform to show his power and spread his word. I want to show you a picture of my long-lost twin brother in Ohio. Dallas, if you go to the next slide. That's Kareem Smith and his wife, Rennell. Okay, he's not a twin, but he is a brother in the Lord. <laughs> and I got that picture up there for a couple of reasons. I think his life is an illustration of what I just said about God using our problems to show his power and spread his word. He and I were in the same college group at the same church. He's two years older than I am. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. And tomorrow morning, that, that, that room that they're standing in, they launched their first official service of a church that he just planted called the Faith Word Community Church. <laughs> I picked that picture because doesn't it look an awful lot like our gym? <laughs> yeah. That's in the, our hometown where Matt and I were born. It's two blocks away from where we grew up. Our parents are part of this church. And tomorrow is their first kickoff. Now, I want to share a little bit of his story. The uh, local paper, the Morning Journal, told a story, wrote, wrote a story about his life. I want you to listen to this. It's so awesome. It says, in the newspaper, for all to read, what makes Smith, Kareem Smith, unique among members of the clergy is he has seen life from both sides of the proverbial fence. At age 19, Smith said he found himself caught in the grip of hopelessness and despair. He was arrested and charged with aggravated drug trafficking. The young man was facing prison time that could have kept him behind bars until he was a middle-aged man. He was convicted and sentenced to serve from 3 to 15 years in prison. You talk about a problem, right? That's a problem that could ruin someone's entire life, potentially. But problems are often God's platform to show his power and spread his word. The article continues, Smith credits his uncle Dwight Brown of Lorraine, a steelworker, as his lifesaver and the person whose guidance and direction got Smith thinking about a new path in life. Quote, even before I was arrested, my uncle encouraged me to walk a different walk. He just never gave up on me and continued to pursue me and show me forgiveness. He provided me with a much-needed affirmation and mentorship from day one. I credit him for saving my life, Smith said. And after the cell door at the prison slammed shut, Smith said his uncle continued to keep in touch with him. He would approach me from time to time. He was the first person after my arrest to express his love, said Smith of his uncle. He told me, I know you did wrong, but I love you, and God loves you. It was an expression of Christ-like, unconditional love. Later that day, I gave him a call. I told him from that point on, I was surrendering my life to the Lord. I'll always remember the date. It was February 12, 1993, nine days after my arrest, Smith said. Smith eventually served two years in prison and was paroled in 1996. After he got out, he met his Wife, Rennell, they've had four children. He went to Moody Bible Institute, where we had the privilege of being for four years. He went to Dallas Theological Seminary, 
spent time at two larger churches, and recently stepped into this journey. In the last paragraph of the article, he said this about his church plant. Many people in churches today have lost sight of God's heartbeat. Our families need to experience the love of Jesus Christ in some way, shape, or form through our acts of kindness. Some churches concentrate on the spiritual and ignore the social action. We want to impact both, as Christ called us to do. Problems are often God's platform to show his power and spread his word. It's true today, and it was true in the early church. I want to show you in Acts chapter 6 a problem that hit the early church. You know, sometimes I think we get this nostalgic, idealistic idea about the early church. Yeah, we know they got persecution from the outside, but we think on the inside, man, all those people got along so perfectly. As one pastor put it, we, we think they rode unicorns and ate lucky charms all the time. You know, zippity doo dah, life is perfect. It wasn't. The early church was not perfect. And Acts chapter 6 will show us that. Acts chapter 6 verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now I've been married way too long to be foolish enough to point out that one of the first problems inside the church involved women. I thought we could start there tonight, but I thought, no, you know, we better go a little deeper. One for my own safety. (laughs) Two for the, the purpose of what the text really says. Yeah, there were widows involved here, but as you look a little deeper, there was a problem. You see, There were two groups of Jews that had come to know Jesus in in Jerusalem. One was the Grecian Jews. These were the the Jews that grew up all over the empire. They spoke Greek, and then they moved to Jerusalem. Then there were the Hebraic Jews that grew up in Jerusalem. And yeah, they probably knew Greek because that was the, the universal language of their day, but they also knew Hebrew. And they knew the temple well, and they knew Jerusalem well. And there's a wedge between them, almost like you see between native Prescottonians and Californians sometimes, if you can imagine it that way. You know, those Californians, they drive too fast, man, and you walk down the street and they don't wave to you. Those Prescottonians, all all those people are part of a good old boys club. They need to get with it, you know, come into 2013. Those are the kinds of things both, both sides say towards each other. There's this conflict going on, and evidently, the widows of the Grecian Jews felt like they weren't getting their fair share of the collected food that came in to help the widows. The, the Hebraic Jews were getting special treatment. Conflict in the church is nothing new. Complaints in the church are nothing new. I got a pastor friend that said, sometimes it comes down to stuff as silly as the, the color of your carpet. And he said what he learned after going through that process a few times is the safe bet is to go with red carpet. That way it hides the blood after all the fighting is done. (laughs) They've got a problem in the church. They've they've got a conflict and they've got to solve it, right? Verse 2 tells us what they did. So the 12, who's that? The 12 apostles gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us, the 12, to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. I don't know how that hits you. There's two ways to look at that verse. There may be some in that room that say, wow, those guys think they're pretty high up, don't they? (laughs) 
They, they think they're above helping these widows get their food. That sounds kind of arrogant to me. That sounds kind of proud. But what I want to tell you is what they say about leaders in the church is reflected over and over in the New Testament. Leaders of the church are not the ones that the people pay to do all the work so the people don't have to. That's not biblical. And if you're ever in a church like that, it's messed up because what that does is burn out a pastor and two, makes all the people in the church think they're destined to live much smaller lives than what God has really called them to. Ephesians 4 says God calls even pastors to equip the body for works of service. Not to do all the work, but to equip the saints for a God-sized vision for their lives. So this, this is biblical. They go on, verse 3, it says, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. In other words, you guys pick out seven guys that don't live in their own power, that don't live in their own wisdom. They live in the power of God. There's something supernatural about their lives that makes them stand apart from, from other people. They, they live in the power of God's Spirit, and they have wisdom. You know what wisdom is? It's that ability to go beyond where we have our time in God's Word and then get to the rest of our lives and we sort of forget about what we read that morning. Wisdom is, okay, God, this is what I read. Now show me how this should change my life. Show me how to apply this to the situation I find myself in today. He said, those are the kind of guys I, I want you to find to, to solve this problem. They go on, we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. Now, something else I see about that early church, when I look at the way those leaders handled this problem, they trusted God to do his work through his people. They weren't interested in micromanaging every detail of what happened in the church. They believed in a God that was bigger than them, and they were secure enough in him to know that, hey, God can work through people besides just us. It's not the apostle show. It's, it's the God show. So we're going to continue to do what God's called us to, to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. We're going to trust God to use these seven men. Verse 5, thankfully, it says this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen. We're going to come back to that name. A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip. We'll come back to him as well. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumbaa. I've just seen. That's a Lion King joke. Just see if you guys are still awake. It's a Parmenus, actually. And Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles laid their hands on these men that signified, hey, we trust you with this leadership over this area. We commission you before God to take care of this. One thing that's cool, when you look at all those names, if you study them, they're actually Greek names, which tells us something important. Probably all seven of these men were Grecian Jews. Now, wasn't that the group that was worried about sort of getting the shaft? So they picked people from that same group to deal with the issue. And there's a principle there. 
We used to do this when I was at the Heights Church, and I still believe in it here. The, the principle is, if you're passionate about something in the church, if you look around and say, man, we need to do this, or we need to do that, or this needs to get better, or we need to do more of that, there's a good chance you're one of the ones called to make it happen. <laughs> so people used to get scared at the Heights to come up and tell us ideas, because so, we'd say, hey, all right, when are you going to start? <laughs> If you're passionate about something, I'd encourage you to look in your heart. What are you passionate about in our church, in our community, for God's kingdom? There's a real good chance you're one of the best ones to help make it happen. And as leaders of this church, our role is to help you pursue that calling that God's put on your life and encourage you. Of course, you want to do it with the leader's support. But you want to say, hey, leaders, this is what we need. Go get it done. No, we're a body. And maybe you're the best one to help pull that off. The result of what happened here, when they did church God's way, even in the light of a problem, check out what verse 7 says. I love this. The word of God spread. And it doesn't just say the word of God spread. It says, so, in other words, because all this went this way, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And check this out, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. These were the, the guys in the temple that offered the sacrifices. Some of the last people you'd expect to say, I believe in this Jesus guy. They began to come to faith because the church was all operating in their roles in the way God had called them to do. The word of God spread. And I want to give you guys a, a little bit of, of a preview of the next three messages where we're going. I want to show you three guys through whom this spread happened. And we're going to spend our next three messages spending one whole message on each of these guys. But I just want to give you the overview right here. First, I want to talk about Stephen. And then we'll talk about Philip and Paul, just real briefly. These were three of the men that the word spread as a result of this problem through. And these verses aren't going to be up here, so you'll just have to listen in. Stephen was in chapter 6 and 7, okay? Chapter 6, verse 8 says, Now Stephen, wasn't he one of the seven chosen to solve this Widow problem. Verse 8 of chapter 6, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. He was empowered by God to do awesome things for God. And eventually he got called before the higher ups in the land. And he had to give a defense for what he was doing. And we'll look at that defense in detail later. But you guys all know what happened. The end of chapter 7 the leaders covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep or, or he died. He said, well, how does that help spread the word of God? Well, as he spread it there in Jerusalem, we're going to see that his martyrdom started a chain reaction that would take this good news around the world. And we'll talk more about that when I talk about Paul. Well, I want to talk to you about Philip, too. He was one of the seven, right? Chosen to take care of this problem with the widows. Chapter 8 tells us about him in verse 4. Those who had been scattered as a result of what happened to Stephen preached the word wherever they went. 
That phrase right there, we can make a whole message out of that. Sometimes we get in this mode where, hey, I'll start talking about Jesus when I'm done with Bible college, or I'll start talking about Jesus when I go on this two-week missions trip this summer, or I'll start talking about Jesus when. That's not what this says. It says wherever they went, they told about Jesus. Wherever we find ourselves, we ought to be doing the same. But it says in verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. This was the first time that the gospel of Jesus Christ had gone to Samaria, most likely. A lot of those Jews saw these guys as half-breeds. But Jesus takes the, or Philip takes the word of Jesus there. He gave it to an Ethiopian. You remember the end of chapter 8, verse 26? An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road. Started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Not just any eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. You guys know the story. Philip comes alongside. The guy's got questions about Jesus. Philip tells him about Jesus. He gets baptized. What happens after that? He goes back into the heart of Africa to a queen of Africa. And you can be sure she heard the word about Jesus. Stephen spread it in Jerusalem. Philip in Samaria sent some back to Africa. Before we get to Paul, I want to give us a word about Stephen and Philip. What were they originally recruited to do? with the seven. It was a very specific role, right? To take care of the distribution of the food. That was all that was said there. But what I love is that they did not limit themselves to that only. And I take a challenging message out of that. There are many good things that, that many do in this church, and we are so thankful for them. We cannot meet together if we didn't do some of the things we do. The, the chair set up, the, the musicianship, up, musicianship up here, the, the AV, uh, the setting up of classrooms, the pulling of trailers, you name it. There are many countless tasks that need to be done and we're thankful for them. But we must never, ever think that that is the limit of our service for God and his kingdom. God has a big, big dream for every one of you that believes in Jesus in this room to make a difference for him in the world, to spread the good news about Jesus. Think about how easy it could have been for Stephen and Philip to say, hey, I'm not one of the apostles. I didn't grow, I didn't spend three years with Jesus. I didn't watch him do all those miracles. I didn't hang out with him in the upper room. I'll let them talk about Jesus. I'm just going to take care of this job that I have. No, they knew they were ministers of the gospel and they used the opportunities they had in the church and said, hey, I'm a minister of the gospel too. I'm going to use this and tell people about Jesus. God wants to use you for a big kingdom purpose, to share the good news about Jesus in our world. I told you I mentioned Paul also. His name was Saul initially. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Saul was there at Stephen's death, giving approval to it. Listen to what happened. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And as you see so often in our world, once that first person is killed, you think of it in any terms you want. Think about abortion. Once, once it was legal and they started doing it, 
all hell broke loose and millions of babies started getting killed, right? You think about what's going on in Syria. Once the first atrocity happened, all hell broke loose and thousands of people began getting murdered. Stephen was the tip of the iceberg. And once they found found him worthy of being killed, all hell broke loose against the early church. And Saul began going across the kingdom on a mission to capture Christians, throw them in jail. And later on in his epistles, he says, follow them even to death. He went on this rampage. God's still in control because it was on one of those journeys to a city to catch Christians. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. We know the story, and eventually God would say to Ananias, who would meet Saul, soon to become Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. This man would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So you got Stephen sharing the good news in Jerusalem as a result of his appointment. You got Philip taking it into Samaria and spreading to Ethiopia as a result of his appointment. You got Saul, who's spurred on by the death of Stephen, who will eventually take it to the ends of the earth. And as I think about Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, it sounds an awful lot like something Jesus said at the beginning of this book, doesn't it? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you know what? No problem was going to change what Jesus wanted done to advance his kingdom. In fact, he used the very problem in the early church to help launch the good news into the kingdom. Our problems often become God's platform for showing his power and spreading his word. So I want to ask you tonight to think about what problems are you facing in your own life? What is it that is burdening you right now? What's weighing you down? What keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a conflict between you and a family member that's just been ongoing. Maybe it's a friend that you can't resolve this conflict. Maybe it's the consequences of a sinful past in your life. Maybe you have some questions without answers. You've been asking God for months, please show me the way in this situation, and it feels like you're getting nothing. Maybe you're weighed down with discouragement tonight. And maybe it's more than just a couple hours of discouragement. Maybe it's been a couple weeks, and you're wondering, when is this going to let up? I'm tired of crying myself to sleep. I'm tired of not sleeping because I'm so worried. Maybe it's a full-blown depression. And you're looking at it and saying, I don't see any end in sight to this. I don't know what your problem is that you're facing tonight, but one of the things I like to do So I fall prey to these same problems, discouragement sometimes, depression. As as, as you do ministry, there's an enemy that comes at you and weighs you down. I like to read Christian biographies. 
There's two men's biographies that I've been reading lately. One is Jim Elliott, and I'm finally done with the book, so you guys will stop hearing about him for a while. You'll hear about somebody else. But you guys know he, he was one of the men that gave his life at the hands of the Alka Indians, felt called to take Jesus to a tribe that had never heard about Jesus. And we all know that part. What I didn't know until I read the book, his wife Elizabeth Elliot tracked his journals from the time he was a Bible college student at Wheaton College to the time he was a month before he was going to go meet those Alka Indians for the first time. And one of his last journal entries that she talked about, one month before he made first contact with those Alka Indians. And yes, it would cost him his life, but yes, it would open up the doors for the gospel to go through that whole tribe. One month before, she said a darkness fell upon him like something she had never seen before. A discouragement like she had never seen in him. The way she worded it, she said Satan brought out his master tool against her husband in a way that she had never seen. She couldn't help him. All she could do was pray for him because he was in a dark, discouraged place. I promise you, he could not have seen that one month later he would have met those Alka Indians and began the process that led to the salvation of their village. All he knew at that moment was the discouragement and the darkness. He said that one of the biographies that impacted him the most was a biography of a missionary in the 1700s named David Brainerd. He was a missionary to Native Americans in the New Jersey area. So I said, hey, I want to read that one too. So I started reading about David Brainerd. If that inspired Jim Elliott, it must be good. I read about David Brainerd, and he was working with the tribes of Indians over there in the east of the United States, Native Americans. And, and he got to this moment that he described as dark, discouraging. He felt like giving up. And, and as he wrote in his journal, he said, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this weight. The white people around here hate me. Uh, because at that time, those tribes of Native Americans were stealing from the white folks, and many of them were drunkards in that area. So anybody who would reach out to them would be, of course, disliked by the neighbors. He was disliked by the other white folks, and he wasn't seeing any fruit, any, any light of these Native Americans accepting the gospel that he brought to them. He said, I, I feel so dark. And on top of it, he was battling tuberculosis. He actually died as a, a 29-year-old. But it was within... A few weeks or a month of him feeling that darkness that he began to write in his journal of conversions in the tribe of Native Americans. Native Americans that began to understand Jesus. And that next year, he, he baptized tens and twenties. And forget if it was 60 or 75 Native Americans in that tribe came to know Jesus. I can promise you, when he felt that darkness, he didn't know that was coming. He didn't know that God was about to break through in a powerful way. And I read those biographies and I say, man, isn't that like us? When we hit the discouragement, when we hit the darkness, the depression, we can't see what's next. All we know is the, the present reality of what's on us. But could it be that like with the early church, like with David Brainerd, like with Jim Elliott, could we become a people that really believe that our problems are often the platform upon which God will show his power and spread his word? Could it be that it's really true that it's darkest before the dawn, often in our lives with Jesus, because there's an enemy that hates what God's about to do? And if 
we can't see what's about to come. We can at least take hope that we have a God who knows what's about to happen on the other side of the darkness that we're going through. So I just want to say to you, whatever problem you're facing tonight, whatever's weighing you down, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep trusting in the God that specializes in using those problems as a platform to show his power, spread his word. Maybe that's a word that you needed tonight to encourage you. That's one possibility. Maybe it's a word that, like Kareem Smith's uncle who kept reaching out to him, maybe it's a word that, like his uncle, you need to pass on to somebody you know. Our problems are often a platform for God to show his power and spread his word. Lord, I thank you that the early church wasn't perfect. We'd have a hard time relating to them if they were. Lord, it was filled with people. There were complaints. There were, there were issues. As we read this passage, it's so awesome to see that Stephen and Philip, and as a chain reaction, Saul, who would become Paul, would, would take your word around the world, Lord, and advance your kingdom. Thankful for the lives of those who have gone before us, like David Brainerd and Jim Elliott, who remind us that darkness of the soul is not something that only we experience, and it's not always the end, Lord. It's often just before your power breaks through. Your power shines forth and your word is spread in a powerful way. God, I pray for anyone in this room that's weighed down tonight. Maybe they came in and were feeling hopeless at the end of their rope. Maybe somebody in this room was even thinking about ending their lives. I don't know. Lord, I pray that this message and your control of life would, would encourage them tonight. Lord, and we thank you that you are more powerful than the one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. I celebrate the fact that in the book of Revelation, when it was time for him, when it will be time for him to be locked up for a thousand years, you didn't even come down to do the job. It doesn't even say an archangel came down to do the job. It says an angel locked him up. He is obviously inferior to you. It's not an even match, God. He is a creation. You are the creator. You are in control. And Lord, the gates of hell cannot advance against your church, Lord. I pray that whatever darkness any are experiencing in this room would be the platform upon which your power is shown and your word is spread. Lord, we say a special prayer for the Faith Word Community Church in Lorain, Ohio as they launch tomorrow morning. We pray that that church would, would bring glory to your name and salvation to that community and around the world. Lord, we're thankful for the, the multiple examples of you doing your work in our world. God, we pray that you continue to do it here. God, we want to see your power and we want your word to spread. Pray that even as we take our offering tonight, it would be to that end, Lord, in faith for you to advance your kingdom. Thank you for your word. Speak to our hearts as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.